So we're going to be in Mark chapter 4 today, the end of that chapter, looking at the pretty famous story of Jesus calming the sea. If you've been around church much, you've probably heard this story. It's a pretty remarkable account, and it's generally very encouraging for us. It gives us strength to face uncertainties, fallow ground and whatnot, like we've been singing. But it's a little bit of a strange passage, The Bible uses the sea um, always to represent chaos and uncontrollable forces in our lives that are terrifying. Uh, The ancient metaphor for the church is a ship uh, in the storms of the sea, but protected and encompassed in the ship, kind of like the ark with Noah. Church architecture is kind of based on that. The, The typical roof for a church nave is an inverted shit's hole. I, I just needed that one hunt to make that feel worth it. So thank you, whoever hunt. Um, yeah, like when I was growing up, the, uh, the church newsletter at Avondale Baptist Church was called the Ship's Log because the church understands itself to be a ship in the storms of the world, uh, safe and protected by Jesus. So... In the story we're looking at today, the episode of the disciples who are experienced uh, fishermen, very comfortable on the water, were in a storm so bad that they were terrified and didn't know what to do, and Jesus didn't seem to care or be helping in any way. And so they go and appeal to him, and rather than being sympathetic to them, which I think I would have been, uh, Jesus kind of rebukes them and says there's something defective in your faith that's causing you to respond to this crisis the way you are. And so I want us to try to dig in and figure out what is that? What are we supposed to do? And what does faith look like in times where faith is really perplexing and hard? So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to you as we listen to your word. We pray that as we uh, consider your son, Jesus Christ, that who he is, what he's done for us, and what he's teaching us here would penetrate us helpfully so that we might know you. And we ask in his name. Amen. Okay, read with me beginning at verse 35 of Mark 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Do you know the uh, story of Chesley uh, Sullenberger? Got a whole Tom Hanks movie uh, done after him. Yeah, thanks. He's, uh, he's the pilot from the United flight back in 2009 
that had to crash land into the Hudson River, and he saved everybody uh, quite dramatically. Um, and apparently hasn't really embarrassed himself as a public figure since, which may be even more amazing. But uh, yeah, the geese went into both of the engines after they took off from LaGuardia, and the engines stopped, and there they are. And so he's got in a split second to execute what later became known as the miracle on the Hudson, but he's got to figure out what to do now. And um, you know, he can't, he's, they're over the Bronx when this happens, and so they can't just land there. He thinks of what his options are. There's, there's a small airport not too far away, LaGuardia's behind them not too far away, but, but too far away. Like, doesn't feel like confidently he can make it back there. Um, the New Jersey Turnpike was an option, but it was packed with cars. And so that wasn't really an option. So his last and worst option was the Hudson River, which was extremely dangerous because landing in moving water like that, you know, I, I know nothing about aviation, but, you know, you dip a wing just a little bit too far and that catches first and or the nose hits first, you're in big trouble, right? It's extremely difficult and dangerous, but he didn't really have any other option. But he's got like a minute or two, and he's got to do all these things. I wrote these down. I learned this from the internet. Um, he has to shut down the engines. He has to get the right speed to maximize glide time for the plane, but the only way to manage the speed is by raising or lowering the nose of the plane humongous plane. And so um, he's got to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. He's got to activate the ditch system, which apparently closes up the valves and vents on the plane so uh, in a water landing it won't, all the water won't come in, although a lot did. Um, he has to make a sharp left turn gliding in this huge plane to get lined up so he can be going uh, with the current of the river when he lands because that's going to make a big difference in their ability to control the plane, apparently. And all of the maneuvering can only be done with things that are battery-operated or emergency generator can run, um, which presumably isn't much, right, on a plane. He's got to make that happen. Then he's got to straighten it out and bring the nose back up a little bit to slow it down, but not too much just the right amount so that they can land in the river. And he did it. He did it. Um, then he goes and gets everybody out of the plane. He goes up and down the aisle, even the water's coming into the plane now a couple of times, goes out on the wings to make sure that everybody's okay and uh, gives someone his jacket because they're in danger of hypothermia. And um, he handled it, right? Like he handled it in a panic emergency. Even landed as close as he could to boats so that the rescue could happen faster. So that's how you get a Tom Hanks movie made after you, is uh, you come through in the clutch like that. Um, my response to crises is generally different. Um, my, my motto is, when in danger, fear, or doubt, run in circles. Scream and shout. Right? And uh, that's worked well for me through the years, but the disciples in their panic in the boat didn't do well, apparently, although it's easy to be sympathetic to them, right? Uh, they know enough to know when it's bad and when it's dangerous, and it's bad. Um, 
it's astounding that Jesus was asleep in the midst of this kind of pandemonium. It's hard to imagine. Um, but they know that they're in danger of being capsized and drowning. They know this good and well. And Jesus doesn't commiserate with them in their situation very much at all. I mean, he certainly helps them in their situation. But his response to them isn't, wow, that was close. Thanks for waking me up. It was, uh, hey, have we been together this long and your faith still isn't operative in a crisis moment any more than it is now? That's not okay. Uh, which is a very interesting response. I mean, I'm not sure. I try to figure out, like, what did he expect them to do? Like, what, what was the right thing to do? Um, maybe something was in the tone of their voice when they said, don't you care that we're perishing? Right? Maybe... Maybe there was something in that, but it's hard to know, like, what does a response of real confidence in Jesus and trust in him look like in a crisis situation like that, or like the ones that we find ourselves in uh, from time to time in our lives, right? What does it look like to respond in faith? It's not just, that doesn't just feel overblown and over-spiritualized as if you don't actually feel the weight of what's going on in your life. I mean, I don't think they were supposed to pretend that the waves weren't real, or that the danger of capsizing wasn't real. Um, and they weren't just supposed to say, you know, I have such faith that there are no waves. You know, I'm just going to believe that there are no waves and we're fine. That doesn't seem like the right approach either. What does he want him to do? What does he want us to do uh, when we're in the waves and the wind? So that's what I want us to think about. First of all, it's important to talk about what is faith. Because that's his accusation against them. He says, have you still no faith? And the, the word faith is used a couple of different ways in the Bible. And you can kind of tell from the context usually what's being said. But sometimes faith is used in the scripture to mean um, the opposite of human achievement and performance. You know, faith, we're saved by faith in Jesus, not by good works that we do. That is, by trusting Him instead of trusting ourselves. And that's a different kind of faith than what He's talking about here. He's talking here about, oh, where's your confidence in me in the circumstances of life? Like, what does your life with me look like day to day and especially in crises in your life? And what benefit do you derive from that? Uh, how do you see me functioning in your life helpfully in those situations? That's what He's talking about here when He talks about faith. He's never talking about, as the Bible never does, faith as some sort of optimism or uh, belief in yourself. Um, the ways that people use the term faith in our culture are almost always different than the way the Scripture uses it. Right? When people hear I'm a minister, they usually think I'm going to be an optimist. I'm like, oh no, my friend, I'm not. Um, I have confidence in Jesus. But I'm not an optimist, and I don't believe in myself, right? I believe in Jesus, right? And so faith, as a Christian, is, well, who is Jesus, and what did he say he was going to do? I trust him for that. It's not, I just really need to stir up faith in myself so I can be really you know, confident and optimistic against all odds in all situations. Um, apparently that works for golfers. They make a big deal out of positive thinking. I don't really buy that. But that's not what faith is, right? Faith has to do with the object of your faith. What do you trust? We trust Jesus Christ. 
what He has said, what He has done for us, who He is for us. That's what faith is. It's confidence in the object of our faith. And in some ways, what Jesus is saying to the disciples on the boat is just this. You should know by now that I'm trustworthy. You should know by now that I'm trustworthy. And that doesn't seem to have penetrated down to your lizard brain where you react in times of crisis. But it needs to. You should know that I'm trustworthy. And so that's what he's pressing on them. Are they supposed to believe that if they're strong Christians and they have good faith, they'll never be shipwrecked? Nope. (laughs) Christians get shipwrecked. That they won't have to go through storms? They're not promised that they won't have to go through storms. They're going to have to go through storms. Are you promised that if you're a Christian and you have real faith, at least you know you're never going to drown? Nope. (laughs) Christians drown, right? Um, Those aren't what we're promised. Those aren't what we're promised. That we're going to be spared from the bad circumstances or they're going to be alleviated, maybe just at the last moment, but always taken care of so that everything works out great. That's not what we're promised, right? That's not what we're told. What we're told is, you need to fear Jesus more than you fear the storm. Like, in your mind, Jesus is bigger than the storm. And the way you get used to looking at the world and experiencing the world is that Jesus is bigger than my life, Jesus is bigger than my storms. And He's trustworthy. So somehow that's what faith is we got to get there. Um, you have to believe that He really is good, He really cares for you, and He really is in control of your life, even though it's going to be perplexing. I mean, when you're going through a crisis as a Christian, it's almost always like you're, you're like the two-year-old at the doctor's office getting a shot. You know, where your parents that up until now you thought loved you have dragged you into this torture chamber, and they're sitting there watching and approving while this man takes a needle and jabs it into you. And if you've ever been a parent and seen the look on a kid's face, when they look at you after you let that happen, you know, it's like everything I've ever believed about my life has just fallen into tatters right now because um, you clearly hate me, right? Um, But surely most of our responses with God have that same look on our face, like how could you possibly say you love me and let this happen? It's impossible. And... But yet, that's true. With uh, you ever have to comfort kids in a monsoon with all the lightning storms coming, and they were they were terrified by it. I haven't, but we had thunderstorms in Georgia, and I had to comfort them then. Tornadoes too. So I would tell my daughter, who didn't like the idea of tornadoes very much, and every day on the news, Dan Satterfield would come on and say, you know, there's like a ninety percent chance you're going to die in a tornado today, and. It's hard to mute the TV fast enough sometimes for that. and So she's terrified of the tornadoes. What do I say? If you're a Christian and you have faith, you'll never get hit by a tornado. No, I can't really say that. I mean, what do I say to the kid afraid of the tornado? You say, well, who made that tornado? Who controls it? What does he think of you? And that's all I got, right? Who made it? Who controls it? What does he think of you? Um, you can trust him. Even if the tornado hits. But what else do you say? That's what our faith is supposed to be. We sing 
songs about this a lot. I think the church sings about this a lot because we know it's hard in the, in the crisis to remember. But we sing, Be Still My Soul. I think we're going to sing that later. The waves and wind still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. That's our faith. So why is it so hard? Um, kind of two, two parts of faith and trusting Jesus in hard times. And one of them is easier than the other. The easier one is believing that he has the power to control things. I, most Christians I talk to don't struggle that much with this. They think, yeah... I think God has the power to answer prayers and change things that need changing, that he's in control of my life. Um, I think he has power. But it is a little remarkable, like the disciples would have agreed with that too, but when they saw him speak to the waves and the waves listened, it blew them out of the, out of the water. Sorry, <laughs> that was not planned. The, uh, who, is, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? And, like, who talks to the ocean and it listens? Hmm. God. Right? They're getting the idea that this is not just a man, though he is a man. He speaks to the storms and they listen. This is in the Old Testament. You know, you get uh, ideas of this, the primordial chaos of the sea. And, you know, uh, several of the Psalms talk about life's crises as waves crashing over us, feeling totally out of control by something overpowering. Um, and like Psalm 46, which is a big comfort psalm for people going through grief, it's where the mighty fortress is our God comes from. The song um, says, you know, I will not fear though the seas roar and foam, the uncontrollable forces of my life that are threatening to me. I won't fear because I have a rock that I can trust in the midst of the storms of life. And God is the one who stills the roaring sea. The 107th Psalm um, has a thankful account of people who've been through a storm on the sea that was terrifying, and they prayed, and God calmed the storm. And so that Psalm gives praise to God for calming the sea for His people when they're in danger. And so the disciples, in as much as any of that's rattling in their heads, are thinking, who's able to do this? Or maybe they think of Job in the Old Testament reading that we had today. It says, basically, here shall your proud waves be stopped. Set the boundaries of the ocean that can command the waves and set limits on the waves. Um, I mean, this is the thing that God used in, in speaking to Job to say, the difference between a human being and me is uh, who can control the sea. And when Job heard this, he was like, yes, sir, that's right. And um, now they're looking at Jesus and he's controlling the sea. And they're astounded by this. So they're meant to fear him more than they fear the storms. He has the power to control their lives, to come to their aid, to control their circumstances. And that's the easy part, believing that God is able to do these kind of things. The hard part of faith is believing that he's willing to. Like, yeah, maybe he's able to. Maybe he's able to for good Christians. Maybe he's able to for people who are better than me. But it's me, and I can't imagine that he's really willing to uh, go to many lengths to help me in my circumstances. We have a reflexive doubt instinct that says, um, if God's there at all, he's against me. When we go through crises, 
So, um, the problem for us is that our brains and our instincts aren't any good. And if you try to figure out God just by looking at your circumstances, you're going to wind up with a terrible theology. You're just going to get it wrong. Because you're going to look at your circumstances and draw reasonable conclusions, and you're going to be wrong. And all of us are like that. There's another song we sing in church sometimes, the uh, God Moves in Mysterious Ways song. It says, uh, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. The frowning providence is the storms in our lives, the trials that we don't understand, the things that we're desperate to see changed. Um, And if we judge by feeble sense, we're going to get him wrong. Because you'll never deduce that there's a smiling face behind the frowning providence unless you trust what has been told to you by Jesus and his spokespeople. That's the only way you get there. Um, Figuring out that God is really for you when all the circumstances in your life feel like he's not is a big part of what it means to grow into Christian maturity. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to trust him when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death that he's with us and that he comforts us and that ultimately we are safe in his care. But well, that's the hard thing. And if you're not going through an excruciating trial right now, it may seem that, like that's obvious. But when you go through excruciating trials, it's really difficult to bear this in mind, to really believe it. But what we're told to believe when we think about having faith in Jesus is basically this, is that He has endured the huge storm for you. Like, He endured the storm of the wrath of God in your stead on the cross. He's endured the huge storm for you. What does that tell you about the small storms that you are going through now? Do you think having gone through the big storm for you, that in the small storm he's going to finally lose patience and uh, get fed up with you once and for all and quit helping you? He says, don't believe that, right? Um, He's given us his own son. How will he not also along with him give us all good things? His love for us is secure. It's steadfast. It won't change. He hasn't lost patience with you. You haven't surprised him yet with your behavior. He knew you good and well before he ever decided to go to the cross for you. His affection for you is not going to change. And your trials will make you think that his affection has waned and it hasn't. And that's the challenge of Christian faith to believe. He's still with you in the boat. And he's still out for your good. So how do you um, how do you get to a place of greater maturity and faith like that? How do you develop that so it sinks down to the lizard brain a little bit? Yeah, um, you get there. You know, when Captain Sullenberger was faced with the crisis in the air, that wasn't his first time thinking about it. <laughs> you know, he'd had a little training. Um, he wasn't just relying on his instincts, but he was looking at habits and experience that he had in his life that really enabled him to react as quickly as he needed to and as well as he did in the crisis. Habits of trust are what we have to develop, right? Why are you so afraid 
Why don't you, why don't you yet have faith? Is what Jesus said to them. And I'd be thinking if I was them, well, how do I, how do I get some? <laughs> you know, how do I develop that faith? Um, how do you build trust in a person? Because it's probably similar to how you build trust in God. How do you learn to trust a person? You can get cross-references, right? You can hear what other people say about them, other people's experience of them. That's a pretty big deal. Um, That's why reputations are so fragile and valuable. Uh, You can observe their behavior over time. And you can kind of validate their character before you put your trust in a person. Um, So with Jesus, how do you build trust in Jesus? Well, um, you don't focus on trying to get a stronger faith. I'm just going to try to believe harder and harder, and I'm going to get better and better at believing. Is not the point. The way you build trust in Him is you look at Him. Observe His behavior over time. Get some cross-references from people who know Him. Um, watch Him act and watch Him be faithful in your life. Uh, feel His affection. And learn His heart that way so that you can trust Him more easily. What you focus on is the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. You know, Tim Keller has the great illustration about the ice. He says, uh, if you've got a lake that's frozen over with ice, and one person who's very confident just strides right out onto the, right onto the ice, not afraid at all of falling through. And another person is terrified and is on hands and knees going inch at a time, easing out on the ice. And he says... Uh, you know, which one is the ice more likely to hold? Either of them, right? It's, it doesn't matter whether you're timid or bold. It matters if the ice can hold you. It's the object of your faith that is important, not the strength of your faith. And so it's time spent focusing on the object of your faith, spending time with Him, learning His character, that enables you to trust Him when you're afraid to trust Him. So, and you... You, know, you reason with yourself about it. Is he really in control? Yeah, he is. Does he really care for me? He really does. I, I wouldn't do this to me if I were him. But he really cares for me. I know that he does. And after you fail, this is kind of how I like to approach life. You know, you can debrief your panic. Like, why did I not have any faith in the moment of crisis? And you can ask yourself some questions, and it's probably worth the time to do it. You know, was God punishing me? Possibly, but probably not, right? Um, Was he against me in those circumstances, or was he for me? Even when I thought it was terrible. Could he have stopped it? Yeah, almost always. Is he on my side? Yeah, always. What would he have wanted me to do? Like, How could I have reacted? What was it that I was so afraid of? What was scarier to me than Jesus? What was bigger in my eyes than Jesus in that moment? Um, so you ask yourself these questions. You know, we've been, seems like we've been talking to people who are you know, about to go under for the third time a lot lately and um, you know, marriage crises and church crises and you just think, um, God's not against you. you know, this is terrible. I'd change it in a second if I could, but I can't. But um, He hasn't changed. He hasn't decided that he's finally fed up with you and put out with you. You can uh, read the Bible meditatively. Go slow. 
I think it helps sometimes, especially in trying to, to uh, internalize the, the idea that God is really for you, that He's really good, that He loves you in Jesus. To go slow. It may help to write out your prayers when you're kind of overwhelmed and in crisis because sometimes, I know this doesn't sound right, but sometimes it's better to talk to yourself than to listen to yourself. You know, and so sometimes if you'll write down your prayers, um, it'll be informative for you. You know, you'll you'll think better writing than you do just letting your brain swirl. Um, and then think about it. When the monsoons come next year, please let the monsoons come next year. Um, go outside. You can watch them. You can see forever here. And watch the thunderstorms and just spend a little time thinking about who controls the wind and the waves. Uh, who controls the lightning, and who's in control of your life. Those kind of things help you. You, know, you can build habits of trust in your life by thinking about how Jesus has been faithful to you and how He will be faithful to you. And then one of the best things and one of the least dramatic is to come into the nave, into the inverted ship, and sing together. The kind of songs we sing about our life in the world. Like when sorrows like sea billows roll, it's well with my soul. And ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessing on your head. And be still my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Let's pray.